0: Since the initial release of our coverage of Troy Coleman's case, Attorney Joseph Marone has joined Troy's team and was able to gain access to the original homicide file, or H-file, and the Brady material, it's so significant that we had to rearrange this episode to accommodate the new evidence, which is inserted throughout. Troy has always maintained his innocence, but has never said a word about Darren Johnson and Byron Johnson's involvement in this case until they themselves came forward supporting his claims at the time of our first release. Now, with their admissions, as well as previously discovered Brady material and this new homicide file evidence, we can finally see a clearer picture of what really happened to Kevin Jones, as well as subsequently what happened to Mr. Troy Coleman. Troy Coleman split his formative years between California and the middle-class Philadelphia neighborhood of Mount Airy. But while in Philly, he attended a poor high school in Germantown where he met Byron Johnson, Kareem Nobles, and Darren Keith Johnson. After Troy graduated, Byron and Kareem were the muscle behind a cocaine operation that they all ran out of Troy's apartment. However, a drug drought in the summer of 1989 gave way to desperate behavior all over Philly. While Troy was away in Atlantic City on September 26, 1989, Kareem set up a deal with two men, Kevin Jones and Arthur Sanders. Sanders claimed to have waited down the block while Kevin Jones drove to Troy's apartment in his gray Dodge with $40,000 to buy cocaine. Then, after about 90 minutes, two other men allegedly drove past Sanders in Jones' gray Dodge, a light-skinned driver and a dark-skinned passenger wearing a hat with the brim pulled down low. There's new evidence that indicates that the victim was alive at this time. Nearly two months later, Jones' body was discovered in the gray Dodge, beaten, bound, and shot. Arthur Sanders agreed that Troy Coleman's photo looked like the passenger who allegedly drove by him two months earlier. This shaky ID, along with Darren Keith Johnson's coerced and incentivized false testimony, sent Troy away for life. Despite Darren's recantation, Byron Johnson's confession to being the actual passenger that day, and some explosive new Brady material, Troy continues to serve life for a crime which he was not even in Philadelphia to commit. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. That's me, and today we have a story that I think is going to rock your world in a a different kind of way, right? Because the person that we're interviewing today, Troy Coleman, has been incarcerated for 31 years in Pennsylvania for a crime he didn't commit. That being said, he wasn't a choir boy. Some of the people we have on the show were literal choir people before they were arrested, but he is innocent of this crime. He wasn't even in the same city when it happened, or state for that matter. So Troy's on the phone uh, from prison. Uh, Troy, I'm I'm glad you're here, but I'm sorry you have to be here under these circumstances. Good afternoon, how are you? I'm good, thank you. And with Troy is Jerry Brown, not the former governor of California, but an esteemed attorney from Philadelphia. Thank you for joining us on the show today. Jason, my pleasure. Let's go back, Troy. You grew up in a middle-class environment, right? I grew up in
4: Mount Airy, Philadelphia, which is a middle class neighborhood. And I was blessed to live with my grandmother, who was well off. And we had a beautiful home, three bedroom home. And, you know, everyone who came from that home came to be very successful. Uh, All of them went to private school, even my father. And my father moved to California. And when he moved to California, I was going back and forth from California to Philadelphia from my grandma's house, which California school curriculum. Our junior high curriculum was equal to a high school curriculum here in Philadelphia. But, you know, when I came back to high school here in Philadelphia, Germantown High School, I was looked at as kind of nerdy, I guess, you know, because of the academics, I guess, that we came with versus what was over here in Philadelphia. And, you know, you try your best to fit in and you want to be accepted. That's where... A lot of my demise came from when I got involved with drugs, not needing to, didn't have to. You know, again, my family was well to do. However, you know, just to fit in and be a part of this particular neighborhood that was in Germantown, which is a little bit, um, wasn't a good lifestyle that they lived down there. It was a little more lower class, again, up boundary. Mount So when I started boxing at the age of 13, being down there in the gym, that's how I met a couple of them guys from around that neighborhood. After that, subsequently I got involved with them with the at about the age of seventeen, sixteen. We started out young know, on the corners. So that's when it began.
0: So this must have put you on the radar of the local police. And we know that in that time and place, this was a culture that started with Frank Rizzo, who as the police chief in Philadelphia from 68 to 71. The legacy of brutality and corruption is widely known, and it thrived in the police department after he became mayor. It's really (laughs) crazy that that guy became mayor, but 72 to 80. And they were just beating the shit out of everybody back then. And it's really... uh, It's crazy that this was a major American city. So, Jerry, you were a college student at the University of Pennsylvania at that time, and you experienced or were at least aware of this, right? This is not hyperbole, right? Oh,
2: no. (laughs) If you had a little bit of long hair like I did, every time you walked down the street at night, you were afraid that you were going to stop and hassle by the police. And I'm sure for people of color, it was much worse.
0: In my research, I mean, these were in the 39th District, right, a section of of North Philadelphia, which was a working class, poor black neighborhood. Police routinely made false arrests, planted drugs, robbed victims, and filed bogus reports to cover up their actions. So all of this is known now. It's been documented. This is not us just having a, a, you know— this is a trip down a very ugly memory lane right here. In fact, there were
2: 1,400 convictions that were overturned due to the 39th district. But they're not the only ones. There there was the one squad cases, the five squad cases. I mean, there's been a history in Philadelphia. you know. And then in the 90s, you have one of the cops that was involved in this case, Martin Devlin. A number of cases have been overturned because of him. It's a very... Sorted history
0: right so th- this of course brings me back to another person who was wrongfully convicted who's been on our show tony wright when w- which was ironically the same cop that was involved in troy's case martin devlin and in the article in rolling stone magazine about tony's case there was a pull quote that said that in the 1980s or 90s a black man had a better chance of getting justice in philadelphia mississippi than in philadelphia pennsylvania so let's go to that and of course troy this of course what led up to this, I think, indirectly, is the fact that you were involved, as you've been very honest about, in the cocaine business. Can you tell us about that and the people that were working under you at the time because they come to play a role in your wrongful conviction?
4: Well, when we got involved, it was a couple of guys from that neighborhood, particularly down um, Crocer Street. And this is actually called the Jungle some of the guys that's involved Byron Johnson, Darren Keith Johnson, Raymond Nobles, and his street name was Kareem. My street name at the time was Cassim, with an S. His was with R. His was Kareem. So he was an older guy. He just got out of jail. Did all this time. Everybody looked up to him as the tough guy, so on and so forth. But to me, it was like imperative that I get him involved and somewhat for the muscle as well as Byron.
2: So you had Byron Johnson, Darren Johnson. And Kareem Nobles were your mm-hmm. underlings. They worked for you. Yes. I
4: guess my little intellect being involved in that allowed me to shoot up fast. So I had a little apartment down in Bar Street, Pulaski Town is what they call it area. But we had an apartment in Pulaski Town. That was just for, you know, fun dealing with the drug stuff, girls and all that. The Raymond Nobles Kareem was actually staying in my apartment while I lived. In Mountain area, I still had that place. And Byron had keys to the apartment, Kareem had keys to the apartment. So people had access to it. At that time, when I was driving BMWs, had a nice amount of money, and I was okay. However, these guys that were working for me, they were okay until a drought came in 1989. A drought is when there's no drugs, particularly cocaine, available at that time. And this was a well-known time because uh the homicide rate rose significantly at that time. So when this drought came about, I was okay. These guys, I didn't have anything for them. So they actually ran them up, for lack of a better phrase. They just ran them up. They was just doing all kinds of clean stuff. And this day in particular in which this crime happened, myself and another gentleman by the name of Richard Crawford, that morning of September 26th, we went to Atlantic City. And when I was in Atlantic City, I think I had no more than nine ounces of cocaine left, in I actually, you know, trusted Kareem to deal with that while I was gone. And when I left on the 26th, we get to Atlantic City that morning. I was gambling, taking in sights, you know, shopping, talking all that other stuff to girls, whatever. So I was very intoxicated. I wasn't willing to
0: drive back to the city. So that night we checked into a hotel. Okay, so you were in Atlantic City, having fun, intoxicated, so drunk, in fact, that you had a hard time even remembering where you had checked in and under what name. And then eventually, the prosecution presented evidence that you had stayed at Bally's under your own name, using your shaky memory to impeach your alibi, which makes no sense. They impeached your memory of your alibi with evidence of your alibi? But why let evidence of your innocence stop them from prosecuting you, right? In fact, what we now know is that the state was in possession of even more exculpatory evidence. But we'll get to that in just a bit. So anyway, the crime itself, while you were in Atlantic City, back at the apartment in Philadelphia on September 26, 1989, Kareem had set up a deal with Kevin Jones and Arthur Sanders. Now, according to Sanders, he and Jones, Kevin Jones arrived in the area of the apartment in separate cars around 1.30 p.m. with $40,000 to buy cocaine. According to Sanders, while he waited down the block, Jones continued alone to the apartment in a gray Dodge. Then about an hour and a half later, Sanders allegedly saw two men driving the gray Dodge past him, a light-skinned man driving and a darker-skinned man with the brim of his hat pulled down low in the passenger seat. This is who Sanders misidentified as being Troy. However, in 2019, Byron Johnson admitted to being that passenger, right, that Kareem had hired him to move a body. Back at this point in 1989, it is unclear whether Kareem or Byron even knew that Kevin Jones was still alive in the trunk, and we'll get to how we know that in just a bit. It's dramatic, so stay tuned. That night, though, the Jones family came to Troy's apartment armed, looking for Kevin Jones. They threatened Troy's girlfriend, searched the apartment, but no sign of Kevin. At this point, Troy, well, you had no way of knowing it yet, but you were in a lot of trouble, and not... I'm not talking about with the cops. The cops actually kind of, ironically, inadvertently, saved you.
4: When I got back to Philadelphia that next day, I was stopped by the police. You know, I had my license, and registration, everything was legit, but they found a bag of marijuana in the car, and that might have been a good thing, because I got arrested that evening. And when I, I called home, and that's when I heard everything. Everybody saying, hey, uh, "These guys are looking for you. If you stay there, they want to kill you." So when I was bailed out, my girlfriend at the time, as well as my mother, had bags in the car and a ticket for me. <laughs> and that's that. That that very next day, I was in California.
0: Even though you had nothing to do with this. You've got to leave town for California just to be safe from the Joneses. So you bailed out and hopped on a flight on September 29th. Now, between the time of the abduction and when the body was discovered, Kareem, a.k.a. Raymond Nobles, died. Now, call me crazy, but it might have had something to do with the Joneses. Anyway, so now, November 21st, 1989, the police discovered Kevin Jones' body in the trunk of the Gray Dodge in the John Wanamaker parking lot in Abington Township. Now, by that time, the body was badly decomposing, but it was clear that his face was struck with a blunt object several times. And then one, and this is important, one hard contact, high velocity gunshot wound was the cause of death. And we'll get to why that's important in a little bit. The body was bound with electrical cord blankets, sheets, and some insulation that police chemist Louis Joka later testified matched items from Troy's apartment. So the investigation began, and initially, while under pressure from both the Jones family and the notoriously, like unbelievably, like hopelessly, terrifyingly corrupt detective Martin Devlin, Arthur Sanders was the first to implicate Troy.
2: According to him, never seen Troy before, and he's sitting there waiting for an hour and a half, suddenly a car comes by. Now, when you... I mean, just logically, when you think about it, if suddenly you see a car, first of all, you go, you know, that car looks familiar. And then in your mind, you go, oh, yeah, that looks like it's Kevin's car. And then he looks at the driver and says, that's not Kevin. It's a light-skinned guy. And then he looks at the passenger who has his hat over his head. And he's able to identify him. Now, all this is happening in two or three seconds, according to Sanders' testimony.
4: Officer Sanders said that the passenger, he said he had a baseball cap on, pulled down over his forehead, slouched in the seat. And in a photo where he said, I look like the passenger, putting me in the city at the time. However, I'm in
2: Atlantic City. There's a possible identification of me. Devlin certainly was willing to do something like this to create false evidence because he's done it on multiple occasions, as you all know. And so he probably said, isn't this the guy? He's being pressured by the police to give up somebody on the one hand. He's being pressured by the family on the other. And, you know, he says, yeah, that looks like the guy. And, you know, Sanders is pretty scared to death anyway, because the family is really upset with him. This is an element that's not unwilling to use gunplay if necessary. That's kind of the background of all this and part of the reason why Arthur Sanders' statement is so flaky, if you will.
0: And from what I understand, Sanders had Kevin Jones' pager and keys in his possession when Kevin went missing, so he probably wanted to direct attention away from himself. Now, I've been saying allegedly every time I mention this passing gray Dodge sighting because it may never have actually happened. But even if it did, there's an explanation for the misidentification. Troy and Byron look somewhat similar. Now, let me be clear. I'm not just some white dude over here giving cross-racial misidentification. Troy, you can back me up here, right? Yes. Byron Johnson. Absolutely, yes. Now, you two don't look exactly alike. You're not twins, but enough to say they look like one another. And that's what Arthur Sanders ended up saying. And that's when he's trying to identify someone with his hat pulled down low for less than three seconds behind glass in a car that's passing by at over 20 miles an hour. That's if we even accept that this passing grade Dodge identification even ever happened. It's also entirely possible that this was just a complete fabrication from either Devlin, Sanders, or both to direct the attention, steer the attention toward Troy, who was a known entity to police and whose apartment was involved. But they knew he was in Atlantic City. And then they knew he went to California as well now according to police byron johnson was a prime suspect from day one and they maybe i don't know maybe they thought they could get troy to flip on him we're not sure and we'll probably never know but that would never happen troy was not flipping on anybody and anyway troy was in california so he wasn't even available to be pressured to give up his friends but that didn't change when he came back either or for the following 30 long years but back in 1989, with only Arthur Sanders's shaky ID, the police needed something more for probable cause to arrest Troy.
2: Now that they are focusing on Troy Coleman, they start to focus in on his associates. One of whom is Darren Keith Johnson, who was a 18-year-old, five foot three, 125 pounds, soaking wet youth, essentially who's brought into homicide and who who first says, I don't know anything about anything. And then they proceed to scare the hell out of him by saying, we know you do. And the homicide cops pressured him to give a statement. They told him that if he didn't give a statement that he was going to go to jail, that he wouldn't see his mother again. I'm sure they told him that if he went to prison, that he would be molested there because he was so small. They told him that they didn't want the dead guy, Kareem Nobles. Detective Cohen said, we think that he was involved, but we want Troy because this apartment was rented by Troy. So he's scared to death, and he finally gives up Troy. Darren Johnson says, yeah, Troy admitted to me he had to lay somebody down. Those two pieces of evidence, Arthur Sanders' sort of ID and Darren Johnson, now they have enough to get an arrest warrant.
0: And this is from Darren Johnson's statement about what Troy allegedly told him. And now I'm going to quote, okay? Ready? Quote, I had to lay somebody down over some drugs. Let me tell you how I did it. I put my gun up to him and told him to give it up. I shot him, two to the head, end quote. Now, not only is this statement not specific to the victim, Kevin Jones, but it also has a very important hallmark of false statements, which is factually inaccurate information. As I mentioned earlier, Kevin Jones was shot once, according to the medical examiner at trial, not twice. And from what I understand, they used both the carrot and the stick to get this statement from Darren. And subsequently, and this will surprise exactly no one in our audience, he received leniency for multiple drug charges. And this quid pro quo and the fact that it was hidden from the defense is something that Troy litigated through pro se post-conviction motions, but unfortunately to no avail. But the point ends up being moot here as Darren Keith Johnson has signed multiple affidavits starting in 1998 to recant his testimony for which the prosecutor not only threatened him with perjury, but we find out later that Darren and his mother received ominous threats from the police to stick to the original statement. However, back in 1990, with Arthur Sanders and Darren Johnson, they moved forward with your arrest, Troy. And and on to what ends up being a really interesting preliminary hearing.
4: Yes, it was. It was murder, robbery, conspiracy, and possession of the instrument of crime. The preliminary hearing was April 12, 1990, and at this preliminary hearing, Arthur Sanders, rightfully, I guess he slipped up because he said that we were going to see Kareem, and this is throughout the preliminary hearing, and we were going to see Kareem. Kareem is Raymond nobles. My name was not mentioned.
0: Right. He was going to see Kareem, not Troy, or your street name, Kasim, but Kareem
2: which is probably why Judge Merriweather, who was a decent judge, decided to dismiss the case, because if you're going to see Kareem, that's not him.
0: Right. Sanders accidentally told the truth, even though he had been pressured to lie, but they're not nearly done with you yet.
4: So after Judge Merriweather dismissed the case, then it was about a week or two, and they rearrested me again with the same exact information and They switched the judges and they put it before another man. I think his name was Judge Eigens,
0: and he held it all for trial. And it may have ended in a not guilty verdict if you hadn't been screwed over by Ed Geiger, a private investigator who your family had hired. Now, this guy was supposed to have gone down to Atlantic City and gathered up your alibi defense, which would have literally been the easiest job ever or a private investigator, you just asked the hotel. But instead, we now believe that he never even went to Atlantic City or bothered to speak with Richard Crawford, your alibi witness. Otherwise, he would have found out what the state had already discovered, that you had stayed at Bally's under your own name, and another item that was hidden from the defense, that Crawford had called home several times from the room. Geiger failed to gather this critical alibi evidence and further told you that Crawford wasn't willing to testify on your behalf, which was another lie. Richard Crawford was more than willing, but you didn't find that out until 2009, almost two decades later. Instead, with your fuzzy, drunken memory of A.C., you thought that you had stayed at the Ridgemont Inn under the name Robert Irving. So when the state presented Marlene Smith, a Bally's clerk who testified to you staying at Bally's under your own name, it really hurt the credibility of your memory. But it still doesn't place you in Philadelphia, not to mention your apartment. You were in a different city in a different state, and they knew it. Anyway, what's much worse than this private investigator doing essentially nothing is what was hidden by the state in order to ensure your wrongful conviction. And now in 2022, in light of this new evidence from the homicide file, your being an AC only makes you unavailable for Kevin Jones's abduction.
5: My name is Joseph Marone. I represent Troy Coleman in his ongoing PCRA matters. I'm lead counsel on the case. I continue to consult with uh, Jerome Brown. Recently, we were able to access Troy Coleman's homicide file with the assistance of the courts, which has information or evidence in there that the prosecutor possessed during the course of his case. We went through this entire file and we found critical pieces of evidence that further substantiate Troy Coleman's innocence. We found a search warrant, an affidavit of probable cause, where the police were trying to get phone records because the mother of the victim, Kevin Jones, contacted the police and gave them some pretty astonishing information that she spoke to her son on September 19th of 89, that he told her, that he was in fear of the Junior Black Mafia, the JBM, that he suspected some type of foul play. She did not see him since September 19th. Subsequent to that, on October 19th, a little over three weeks after the alleged date of death in this case, she told the police that she got a phone call. She got a collect call from an individual who indicated he was a member of the JBM and that they had her son, Kevin Jones, in their custody, that he was basically kidnapped. And they were holding him ransom presumably about $10,000. She was initially skeptical. An individual got on the phone, she indicates it sounded like her son, and then the son referred to a pet name of the mother, which further in her mind solidified that it was him. They said that they would call back. They called back. She asked for more information. She wanted a piece of clothing. They thought that was fair, but they were basically working out a deal to hold to get money because they were holding a ransom. The bottom line is this evidence, this information, was indicating that Kevin Jones was still alive, which completely contradicts the entire prosecution theory. This information was known to the police, was a critical and crucial piece of exculpatory evidence that the prosecution and the detectives and police withheld.
0: You should have also been able to show the jury that not only were you not at your apartment on September 26th, but also that you weren't even on the freaking East Coast from September 29, 1989, passed this phone call on October 19th, and passed the discovery of the body on November 21st, all the way to the following year. I'm talking about all the way to January 4th, 1990. Kevin Jones was still alive, then he was killed, then he was found, all while you were provably in California, which proves that the prosecution presented a case that they knew was horseshit. But at trial in 1990, they had attacked your alibi with this differing alibi evidence, which seems like a crazy misdirection play. It's pretty weak. But So tell us what else they presented to trick the jury into believing you were guilty.
4: Well, I believe it, it was the testimony of Derrick and Johnson coupled with the testimony of Arthur Sanders. However, one of the things that was said in closing, was that testimony, page 751 by the prosecutor. He said, if in fact Troy was in Atlantic City and you believe that he was still involved or he put these guys up to it, then this is a, this is something that was said to the jury. You can find him guilty of conspiracy and, you know, second-degree murder and so on and so forth. And an under felony murder is actually saying that as a result of that robbery, a death occurred. We don't believe that he had the intent to kill. Right, And that's what second-degree murder is here in, uh, in Pennsylvania.
2: Well, there's certain enumerated felonies, one of which is robbery. And If you, during a robbery, if a murder occurs, that becomes felony murder, which is, and unfortunately, in Pennsylvania, even if you're convicted of second-degree murder, it's life.
0: Troy, can you describe for us that awful, and probably, I mean, I'm guessing it must have been the worst moment of your life when the jury came back in and found you guilty?
4: He said, I, I, I was just like shocked I was it was so shocking to me that the first couple of years it really weighed on me mentally and you know I lost a lot of family my mother died my grandmother died my grandfather died it just a uh, domino effect of pain and one after another but I just couldn't believe it I like, here we are 31 years later
6: Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy.
3: My best hopes... Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: That's right. First, I give all praise to our creator getting me through this and constantly having that hope uh, that, you know, it, it will come to it. However, it was a time, and actually, to be honest with you, it was just recently when I, uh, they said I was negative, but I know I was positive. I was in infirmary infirmity with covid and I was, oh, I was deadly sick. I never ever felt no pain like that. And at that time, and this was months ago, I prayed and I asked the Lord, I said, if this is, uh, I'd rather go now and don't even torch no more. Just if you feel, I wasn't, you know, suicidal, but I was like, I was okay with, I was okay with dying. I just prayed, like, if this is the time and I'm not going, if I'm not going to go home, i am rather die. And that was my prayer. Subsequently, um, You know, all this happened. It restored a little hope for me. But, yeah
0: you know you're inspiring other people not to give up hope so i'm glad you're here to talk about this and i'm glad you're fighting and i think now in pennsylvania there's you know there's progress and and and, and that should give hope to, to hopefully to you and and many many other people who need relief in the pennsylvania criminal system talk a little about the post conviction litigation because this is a crazy I mean like a lot of these cases are when they go on this long. I mean it should have been reversed, he should have been freed back in 93. That conspiracy conviction in 1993
4: has since been reversed by the Superior Court of Pennsylvania. That in and of itself was a reason to overturn this case and in- me, try me or to let me you know let me go however that hasn't been the
0: case which is just insane to me I mean without the conspiracy and being in Atlantic City for the abduction and California for the murder and the body dump how are you involved in the murder in any way well they continued to try to square that circle with the two bogus witnesses Arthur Sanders saying you were in the car and Darren Johnson saying that you confessed to having to quote lay somebody down over some drugs. End quote. So in 1998, Darren Johnson wanted to come clean and finally recanted and did so in an affidavit. But as we find out later, he and his mother were threatened by the police and the prosecutor openly threatened him with perjury. So when he... I hear, we hear this too much. It makes me sick. So when he came to court in 1999 to affirm this recantation, he was appointed counsel who told him to plead the fifth in order to avoid perjury charges. And he did. But obviously, he would not need to plead the fifth if he was just coming to repeat the lies he had told at Troy's trial, right? He wouldn't have been there at all. So, Troy, you did most of your post-conviction litigation pro se, meaning by yourself from prison, trying to undermine Darren Johnson's trial testimony by proving that he was incentivized by a deal for leniency in his own drug charges and that the defense was never notified about any such deals. And the prosecution got around this by promising Darren a deal unofficially okay and suspending the charges until after troy's trial so they weren't technically hiding a deal in exchange for darren's testimony they were just dangling one and darren later supported that in your post-conviction motions
4: when darren he was asked by the prosecutor david desiderio do you have any open cases at this time darren Keith johnson said yes one five years probation that's a direct quote notes of testimony page 337 however unbeknownst to us that was a lie I mean, all his criminal history, of, he never spent on five years probation. The jury is listening to this. The jury say, oh, OK, he has five years probation. OK, so he don't have any incentive to testify falsely against this guy because he's already been sentenced. Again, unbeknownst to us, that was a lie. Darren actually had an open case at that time,
0: which was resolved 69 days after I got convicted. But unfortunately, so far, post-conviction litigation on this matter has been ignored. The court sided with the DA, finding him more credible than Darren Johnson. However, that's not the last we're going to hear from Darren Johnson. But first, 2009, you find out what I had mentioned earlier, that your investigator at the time of trial lied to you about not being able to find any alibi evidence in AC, and your alibi witness, Richard Crawford, being unwilling to testify. He lied about both of those two things. But you hired another private investigator later on, a guy named Walter P. Lee. And in 2009, he caught up with Richard Crawford.
4: When my private investigator, Walter Lee, went to go interview Richard Crawford, he said that's something that he never said to Ed Geyer. He said, no one never came to see me and told me nothing about Troy. I was with him in Atlantic City, I, and I would have said I was with him in Atlantic City. And we have his statement now, but he said that never happened. So that in and of itself was problematic for me, but now Richard is willing to testify. And this is something that's also significant. Richard Crawford called from the hotel. He called home to his wife, room. The prosecutor had the phone numbers and those phone calls, and a couple of the phone calls was to Richard Crawford's address on McNair Street in Philadelphia. They never turned that stuff over.
0: What weren't they hiding? The only things David Desiderio was presenting was the evidence that he and Martin Devon had fabricated, and even that was falling apart. Darren Johnson recants. They don't want to hear it. Your investigator, Walter Lee, unearths your alibi witness shedding more light on the state's misdeeds, hiding that exculpatory evidence and ambushing you with it to undermine the truth, which they already knew, which was that you were in Atlantic City on September 26th. And they also knew that Kevin Jones was still alive while you were in California through until the end of the year or until the beginning of next year. However, if that alibi wasn't enough for them to stop pursuing you in 1990, why would it stop them in 1998 or 2009 or, or or ever. Right? So another 10 years go past and Byron Johnson, who everyone is scared of and wouldn't even think of snitching on in 2019 had suffered a non-fatal gunshot wound. And I guess he didn't want to die without having told the truth. He didn't die. And he came forward to confess to the part that he played with Kareem.
2: There was a fellow named Herb Hardison, who was with Byron Johnson, who had just been shot. And he said, get me to somebody because I want to be able to tell the truth about this. And he came and he gave a statement. Walter Lee took the statement from Byron Johnson. Byron said that Kareem Nobles called him. He said something about moving some furniture or something like that. And he went over and he saw the body. Kareem said, look, you help me get rid of this body, I'll give you $5,000.
0: So the two men in the gray dodge that Sanders allegedly saw were Kareem Nobles and Byron Johnson. The cops knew that Kareem was involved, and it's believed that the Joneses did too, since he wound up dead before the police had a chance to nab him. Byron's confession and Darren's recantation impeach Sanders' shaky idea of Troy and point directly at Byron. This murder happened in Troy's apartment while he was partying in A.C. So other than letting his friends use his apartment while he was out of town, there's nothing else that connected Troy to the abduction on September 26th, and certainly not the murder sometime after October 19th while he was in, I'm going to say it again, California, 3,000 miles away. But the conflict between Byron's confession when he talks about moving a body and Ms. Jones' statement about the phone call that she received, we just assume that Byron and perhaps Kareem didn't know Kevin was still alive.
5: When you look at Byron Johnson's confession, indicating that he was contacted by Kareem Nobles to come to the house to move a body, specifically the body being Kevin Jones, nobody really gets into the fact of whether Kevin Jones is still alive or not, and neither does he. What could have potentially happened? I mean, Byron Johnson was arrested at the end of September, September 29th, for an unrelated robbery. He was technically out of the loop, so to speak. So the fact that Kevin Jones could have been still alive he may not have known that, and when he ultimately confessed back in 19, he is just trying to be truthful and telling what he knows, that he was called by Kareem to move a body, and he did so, and he was the one in the car with Kareem. It further substantiates that Troy had nothing to do with this.
0: When Byron Johnson confessed, Darren Keith Johnson could finally speak freely, and he gave a sworn affidavit to Walter P. Lee and Jerry Brown, which was very powerful but has never been heard to this very day in open court. So we reached out to Darren to give him a chance to finally speak publicly.
7: When they first came and got me, they laid out some pictures. And I picked out Kareem and they said, no, a dead man can't talk. You know who did it. And they kept pointing at Troy saying he did it, he did it. So they kept saying, I said, no, this man right here, then he had kicked the chair. And, you know, they was getting mad. And they kept taking my hand and putting my finger at his picture. And then when they let me go, I was like, no, it's this guy. And then, you know, one was behind me and the other one was at the desk typing. And they said, we know who did it. And they start typing stuff up and they made me sign it. And so they made me say that he confessed to me. And then after that, I wasn't going to court. And Then they kept harassing my mother. She said, well, they said that they're going to arrest you if you don't come to court. And uh, the fat DA, I know he's a fat white guy. I don't remember his name. He said, well, well, we could give you a probation if you testify what the detectives told you. And it all was a lie. See, Troy was in Atlantic City because I remember, because I said, yo, bring me a pair of Gucci sneaks back. And he started laughing. And he was like, I got you. I see y'all when I get back. I said, all right. You got an innocent man in jail for something he didn't do. You know, I've been carrying that guilt for, for a long time.
6: Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy.
3: My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it.
2: Other than the testimony of these two people, there's not one shred of physical evidence that ties Troy
0: Coleman to this crime. Nothing. And, and to hear the words of Darren Keith Johnson, along with Byron Johnson's confession, in which he completely nullified Arthur Sanders' shaky ID, that should end the state's case right there. Full stop. Then there's this newly discovered evidence from the homicide file, or H-file, that indicates that Kevin Jones died sometime after October 19th, while Troy was most certainly on the West Coast, coupled with all of the exculpatory material that this prosecutor withheld. And the fact that Byron may not have been clear on whether Kevin Jones was actually dead when he moved him? Well, he was arrested on September 29, 1989, and didn't see the outside until well after Kareem had died and couldn't tell him the rest of the story. So with that said, we're going to go to Joe Marone for the current status of Troy's case.
5: So we now have submitted an amended PCRA outlining this critical information that we found in the homicide file. We have served a copy of this petition to the district attorney. We are waiting for the district attorney to tell us when they will respond. But there is a hearing date on July 7th. And based on this information that we have now found and the previous information, we are going to ask for some form of intervention from the court, from the judge to force the district attorney's hands to either have a evidentiary hearing immediately on these issues or to respond to our amended petition so that the judge can make a ruling regarding Mr. Coleman's innocence. Our concern is we're we're caught into the system of of procedure in the courts. And and that being said, it's not unlikely that the DA's office will ask for a 60- and 90-day extension to answer or respond to our amended petition. And that, I believe, is unfair. So what we're trying to do is push the process through, through the judge by the judge really forcing them to kind of respond now.
0: Well, we've previously been seeing some really great things out of the Philadelphia CIU, and we here at Wrongful Conviction, I personally want to encourage them to end this particular injustice as swiftly as they possibly can. We understand that the task of researching and relitigating the last 30, 40, 50 years worth of corrupt cases in a place like Philadelphia, you know, trying to right any percentage of those wrongs is a tall tall all order. So I just want to say to every one of the hardworking people at the Philadelphia CIU, your hard work is not going unappreciated here. But also, we originally released this story a year ago. It's past time to end this nightmare, and we hope they will join our call for freedom and justice. God willing. And with that, we're now going to go to my favorite part of the show, which, of course, is where I first thank all three of you for joining me here today and sharing your your incredible, harrowing story And now I'm going to kick back in my chair, turn off my mic, and just listen to whatever else you guys would like to say. Jerry and then Joe, why don't you guys lead off and then hand the mic off to Troy, and he'll take us out into the sunset.
2: Well, thank you, Jason, for giving me this opportunity to address Troy's case. Obviously, there is a lot of facts and circumstances here that are extremely troubling. One of the problems is back when Troy was arrested, Philadelphia was in the midst of one of its worst homicide waves in its history. Homicide Police wanted to clear cases and do it in the most convenient way because they were being pressured to do so. And therefore, they used some of the cases I've seen, some shortcuts in order to achieve that goal. And one of the shortcuts is that they would pressure witnesses. And in this case, they had two very good subjects that they could pressurize. So these are the only two pieces of evidence that were the heart and soul of the Commonwealth's case. Once they've been debunked, which I believe they have been, it is pretty clear that Troy Coleman is not guilty.
5: Based on Troy's case in its entirety, and if you look back from the day that he was initially arrested, and you start to take apart all the evidence in the case, and you start to realize how the prosecutor, the DA in this case handled the case, and you look at all the evidence that was withheld throughout the process, key witnesses, criminal history, phone records, it goes on and on and on. And I think at some point, now that we found this additional information, we're hoping uh, that the courts will see through this, and some immediate intervention will happen to help expedite the process of exonerating an innocent man who's been sitting in prison for well over 30 years.
4: At this time I would like to say a hum to there to being all priests due to our Lord I don't think anything is going to come to fruition in regards to this case except by the will of our Creator God the most high I would like to thank Jason and uh, my attorney and um, Connor and all that was involved in this my family who has been supporting me through this and my message you know at this time, what got me through these years, I want to push education and vocational skills that's needed. I'm a founder and facilitator of a group entitled Youth, which the acronym is Young Offenders Understanding the Habitual Shackles, which is facilitated by myself, Kevin Bowman, and Tracy Watts, and we push forward to try to help the youth from between ages of 18 and 30 with this enhancing and or their education and vocational skills. But I'm very grateful for everyone, and God willing. I could be speaking further about this on the street as opposed to from the penitentiary guidebook.
0: Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis. with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.
1: Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now